are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. So our teaching text is Isaiah 11, verse 6 through 9. And it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. We were unsure where we were for a moment. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Diaz. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the honor and privilege of continuing our series Lions and Lambs, where we've been examining a pathway toward reconciliation. If you haven't been keeping up, maybe you're like you're dropping in for the first time here at Oaks, you're like, man, I'm dropping in the middle of something. You'd always go back to our podcast to kind of hear what's been happening through this series. But we've been looking at reconciliation from the vantage point of the lion and the lamb, though both the person who has been victimized, hurt, oppressed, wounded, and the one who does the victimizing, the hurting, the oppressing, and recognizing almost all the time we are both, both lion and lamb. The journey of reconciliation is a a pathway that looks different for lions and lambs. And so today we're going to be talking about the lion work we need to do, the lion work of repentance. Previously, Gemma did a phenomenal job talking to us about confession, The idea that after we're convicted and we come face to face with the holy God, we find our conviction, which then moves us to lament and confession. But the confession is not the end of the journey. It is not simply enough for the lion, the one who has used his his or her power and privilege to to wound others, who has used um, their station to usurp the dignity and autonomy of others is not, not simply to acknowledge those wrongs and those lies we believe, but it's also then has to be realized in an outward, physical, embodied reality. In other words, if confession is the reorientation of our inward life, repentance is the outward flow, the new outward reality taken upon by the lion to agree to interact as a result of this conviction, as a result of his confession, a new way of acting and living out in the world. In Greek, the, the term for repentance is metanoia. It's like this literal idea of a, of a turning. And it denotes a change of mind, a, a reorientation, a fundamental transformation, a new way of loving others and God. Repentance is the moment when our spirit-driven conviction grips us and turns us from our sin. It is not simply a feeling. It is not simply feeling grief for the wrong we have done, but it's responding to that conviction and making that confession 
real by living it out and responding with our lives. For the lying in the call of Jesus is not simply to a moment of repentance, some, some moment we can remember where we said certain words or repented of certain things, but a life of repentance, a life of continually turning away from that which has wounded others to that which is life-giving. If, if you don't know anything about me, if we haven't had a chance to have coffee yet, though I would love to, I'm a big reader. I own too many books. You can ask my wife. There, there, I think there might be about 300-something volumes in my apartment right now. Where we have space to sleep, I'm unsure, but we make it work. And so every fall, I kind of give myself like a new reading list. And so, of course, I start off with a bang. I wanted to reread Les Miserables. If you don't know anything about that book, it is a bit of a slog. It is a bit... Um, it's a bit dense. Um, there are a lot of details in that book that don't need to be in there, but they're there. And so I'm around page 400. I'll come back with an update about where I am. Um, it'll probably be around March. But in that story, you have Jean Valjean, right? He's this principal character in the story. He has this radical transformative encounter where he experiences grace and love through this bishop who extends him mercy. And so it's a very powerful moment, it's a very salient moment, but it's only made complete as we continue to read the story. So what we have to recognize is it wouldn't have been enough for Jean Valjean just to have that moment of repentance. He had to begin to live it out. He had to begin to actually change the way he lived and interacted with the world. And so we continue reading the story that that moment of repentance, that moment of mercy, leads into a radical transformation in his life. In other words, just to hammer the point home, repentance is not simply a momentary decision, but a life lived of continually turning from that which causes evil and suffering and hurt to that which is life-giving and good. And so for the lion, for the person who who holds the cards and has the power, for, for the person who has done the wounding, who has benefited from the subjugation and crushing of others, there needs to be this continual lifestyle change where one turns from that which, which they used to do, one turns from that old way of doing things and, and moves towards a way that is life-giving and true in other words, as we've been reading through this Isaiah text we've been journeying through, the lion has to find new forms of sustenance. The lion has to learn to eat straw. This is a radical change because the lion is built to eat flesh. They got the claws for it. They got the fangs for it. It's everything in their disposition. Everything in how they're designed is for being carnivores, and, and that thing, that lion, that way of living has to find its satisfaction elsewhere. The lion, in order for the lamb to lay down with the lion, the lion needs to live a convincing life that they no longer find their pleasure and satisfaction in taking advantage of the lamb. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But how? How do you convince a lion who's up until this point found its satisfaction in eating flesh? How do you convince a lion to eat straw? And this is where we'll be anchored today. 
This is the question we will be pursuing. Having experienced the conviction that comes with seeing God face to face, having confessed that we have participated and believed lies that have led to the wounding of others, how do we reject those lives and live a life that is life-giving and true? And to that, we're going to turn to Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a page long. You can read it in a sitting. And it's a very interesting text because unlike most of the other letters we have in the New Testament written by Paul, this is not written to a church or community, but this is written to an individual. This is written to a man named Philemon. A little bit of background and context for this letter, Paul is imprisoned and he meets a man named Onesimus. Onesimus gets converted after having a relationship with Paul, and actually he begins to do this ministry with Paul, and, and Paul's ministry is booming. This, this, this convert Onesimus, who Paul met, is contributing to the work of the Lord, to the proliferation of the gospel. All is going well, but there's a little hiccup in this relationship between Paul and Onesimus. See, Paul had a friend named Philemon, who was pastor at a house church in Colossae. And Philemon has a bit of an issue because up until recently, Philemon was dealing with the issue of a runaway slave. In Roman culture, and according to Roman law, this is, a, this is an action punishable by death. And the tension here is that slave was Onesimus. So you see where Paul is now. He's befriended this runaway slave who's, he's, who's converted and has been serving with him in a ministry, come to find out that he's run away from another fellow worker named Philemon. And so Paul pens this letter to send with Onesimus back to Philemon, asking Onesimus not to treat asking Philemon not to treat Onesimus as he deserves, but to receive him back as a brother. And here's our tension. What will Philemon do when Onesimus comes back with letter in hand? And it's by exploring this tension, by, by looking at this letter, we're going to learn how does a lion learn to eat straw like an ox? See, for some of us, there's not only tension that's present in the letter, but there's like this present tension whenever we get to a passage like this, because obviously we have to reckon with the reality that Paul is writing a slave master about a slave. And we can get into the weeds about the differences between the economic slavery of the ancient Roman world and the chattel slavery of the transatlantic slave trade. And there's important differences to note there, though both are evil and abhorrent. But there, I think for some of us, when we read a letter like this, we're like, but where's the outright denial of the slave trade? Where's the outright, like, where, where's Paul's pundit line where he says, this is wrong, you have to re receive um, Onesimus back because this whole entire practice is abhorrent. And that tension remains with us as we look at a letter like this. But I want us to lean into that tension. Because what we see here is the early church doing the same work we're doing now. 
the lion, and the lamb work. Here is a real-life case study of Paul addressing someone in power and how he might be reconciled to someone who used to be under his footprint. This is the reality of lion and lamb work. And to console us a bit, it was just as messy and personal then as it is for us today. And so let's lean into the tension because this is actually the tension that's probably filling this room as we've been going through this series. As we've been saying, ooh, I, I recognize the lion side of me. Or I know what it's like to be a lamb. I know what it's like to suffer under the suffering imposed upon me by others. And so let's lean into this tension because it's in this tension we're going to learn how does a lion learn to eat straw like an ox. Now, I want to read to you the intro to Paul's letter to Philemon, just to give us some context about Philemon himself. See, this is what Paul says about Philemon. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and to all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. So our picture of Philemon is complex. Here is a man who is obviously wealthy because he's able to afford servant slave labor. Here's a man who's wealthy, who's a pastor at a house church in Colossae who's known for his love towards the saints. And if that's our portrait of Philemon, why the need for the letter? This is a man known for his love. He's known for his treatment, his good treatment of the people of God. If this is the case, if this is Philemon, why does Philemon need a letter asking him to welcome back Anismus as a brother? This should be a no-brainer for someone like Philemon. If he's this, been tr- this truly renewed and redeemed by Jesus, then the reality is why pen the letter? Why the need for the reminder that now Onesimus is his brother? You would think that someone as, as loving and faithful as described here might know that if someone came to him saying, I'm a brother in Christ, surely he would welcome him. But Paul is wise, wiser than I think most of us are sometimes. Because Paul understands something about the lion. Paul Paul understands something about Philemon, that for all his love and all his faith, the claws are still there. That for all the change that has happened in Philemon's life, he still has the capacity to wound and hurt. And I think it's important we narrow in here because... If I can help us be honest for a moment, there's some of us sitting in this room thinking a series like this is redundant. Like, I love my neighbor. I'm I'm on the up and up on the justice issues of our day. I don't actively seek to harm or wound anyone. Like, why do I need the reminder to do this lion work? You know, like, I, I get it. Like, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Be aware of my privilege. Like, I get it. Like, Thanks for the reminder, but I'm good. I've been doing this work. 
Philemon's been doing the work. He's been loving the saints. He's known for his faith and his love towards others. But Paul understands something. That just because you've been doing the lion work doesn't mean you stop being a lion. You still got the claws. You still got the fangs. And when push comes to shove, for all the work you've been doing, when it costs you something, it's really tempting to go back. When it comes at a cost to you, it's really tempting to, to sharpen those claws again and get ready to do the lion work. It's really tempting to go back and become that which you've sworn you'd never be again. And so Paul, even though he knows Philemon's character, even though he knows Philemon and all the example he's set by his love for the saints, he knows that when Anismus walks back in that door, there's a very real temptation for Philemon to revert back to who he used to be. To take the full might of the Roman law and apply it to Anisimus. Why? Because Anisimus owes him something. And his society tells him that he's justified in getting it back. And when, when you feel like you're justified, when you feel like your actions are justified, when, when your misuse of power to, to take what you want from someone else, to, to lord yourself over someone else, the moment you feel that is justified because there's some self-preservation involved, ooh, it's easy to become a lion again. Paul knows. He knows the reality that it's going to be easy for Philemon to see Onesimus and that rage bubbles up. See, most commentators agree. It's not just that Onesimus ran away from Philemon. This is not just a case of, of the mistreatment of a slave running away. Most commentators, given from the context of the letter, believe this. That it's not just Philemon just ran away, Onesimus just ran away from Philemon. It's that Onesimus probably lost Philemon some money. And mostly, see, because in the ancient Roman world, um, slaves ran households. They, especially if they were well-educated, they were given the books to do. Most commentators believe that there was some fudging of the numbers. And Philemon, and Onesimus got caught. And so now he's not just running away to escape servitude, but he's also running away because he owes a debt. And so now you can imagine the tension when Onesimus walks through the door. It's not just that my runaway slave is returning, it's that he owes me some money. Ooh, the claws come out when people owe us things. When it's in our, it's in our self-interest to once again play the lion. And so Paul writes to Philemon to invite him to pursue a different path. And I think it's Important that we're reading this letter here and now as we go about the lion work of repentance to recognize that for those of us, the lion is always present. And when push comes to shove, when, when it's to our advantage to wound and hurt and subjugate and oppress and use our authority and station to get what we want, that it's a very real temptation. If we're not cognizant of that reality, if we're not cognizant that a lion doesn't change its shape, it doesn't lose its claws or its fangs, we're going to lean in and listen to Philemon because we don't learn to eat straw. A lion might not, might, might not be hungry for a while until it is. If you ever watch lions in 
and like the Discovery Channel, you know, like once they have a big kill, they're satisfied for a while. And some of us think, are sitting here thinking we've done the line work, but we're just still satisfied off the last kill. We're just, we're not even aware of it. We're just biding our time until, ooh, I, f- I feel that rumbling again. I feel that desire to, to exert myself again, to, to use that which I have to get what I want, to lord over others when it's convenient. And so Paul is not just inviting Philemon to do the lion work of repentance. He's inviting us to learn how to eat straw. And so what does that look like? How do we learn to eat straw? What convinces a lion that straw is better than flesh? Well, here I want to turn us to Philemon verse 8, and I'll read through this. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the old, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as if were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, Paul's argument here is actually has nothing to do with Philemon and everything to do with Onesimus. The, the reality is Onesimus has a very ironic name. The name Onesimus literally means useful or profitable. So we can't lose the irony here that a servant slave is named useful. And in the old system, under the old Roman system of economic slave labor, Onesimus' usefulness to Philemon was predicated that he produced wealth for Philemon. His usefulness was caught up in the economic system that built the Roman Empire. Free labor for profit for someone else. And he was useful in that function up until he ran away and maybe took some money along with him. And so now Paul is saying, hey, listen, I know Philemon, he was useful to you, but I I know in running away, the useful has become useless, right? Because what's good? What's good of a servant that's not there to make you money? But now Paul's sending him back. And he's saying, hey, listen, Philemon, Onesimus can be useful to you again, but just not in the way you expect. See, you, you could... Welcome him back as a slave. You, you could welcome him back as a servant, but there's another way. There's another course of action. There's another response. You could just welcome him back as a brother. Why is a brother more useful than a servant? Everything about Roman society says that actually is not useful at all. 
In order for Philemon to get the restitution he desires, he needs to welcome him back as a servant. To to get back that which he lost, he needs to welcome him back, subjugate him again, maybe teach him a lesson or two about running away, and then go about his business. That would be restitution. That would be justice. As perverted as it sounds to our modern ears, that's what should happen in a Roman society to a runaway slave. That would be useful to Philemon. At least if Philemon was going to respond like a lion. But Paul's saying there's another way. You can welcome him back as a brother. And then Paul goes on to say, this would actually be more profitable to you than welcoming him back as a servant or slave. Why? How is that more profitable? Well, if Philemon welcomes him back as a servant, as a slave, then Philemon not only dehumanizes Onesimus, He dehumanizes himself. He becomes that which he left behind when he met Jesus. His sanctification grinds to a halt as he becomes that which he swore off when he was baptized under those waters. In other words, if Philemon welcomes him back as a slave, then he becomes the lion again. But if he welcomes him back as a brother, then Onesimus becomes the means of Philemon's sanctification and ultimately his salvation. That if he welcomes Onesimus back as a brother, he not only gains a brother in Christ, he rejects the impulse to take his revenge, to take what he deems is rightfully his. In other words, he... Onesimus becomes the very means by which Christ is sanctifying Philemon so that he doesn't slip back and fall back into that old way of relating to the world. And so what Paul is telling Philemon is like, hey, listen, if you want to actually gain more than simply a servant, you'll welcome him back as a brother because if you welcome him back as a brother, well, you gain so much more. You gain the redemption of your soul. See, When we hear about the lion work of repentance, about the lion learning to eat straw, it is not about the lion begrudgingly learning to eat something he doesn't really want to eat. I think that's sometimes the picture we might get in our head when we hear this, that that the lion is like painstakingly eats straw because it really desires flesh. No, no, no. The lion work of repentance, learning to find new forms of sustenance, learning to relate to the world in a different way, is actually recognizing That straw was better all along. That straw is actually more satisfactory than flesh. And see, I think what we miss in Isaiah is we're actually seeing a sort of Genesis reversal happening in the Isaiah text. When Isaiah says that the lion will learn to eat straw like an ox, the lion is not going into this new way forward. He's actually going back to how he was originally designed. See, in the Genesis narrative, what we get is that all creatures, great and small, eat from the fruit of the tree and from the grass of the fields. It's only after the fall and after the flood that a provision is made by God for humans to eat flesh. That, in other words, for the lion to have the diet of flesh, death must have already been introduced into the world. And so that means 
The thing that the lion thinks he's created for, he's not actually created for. Who's actually always meant to eat straw. Who's actually always, try, always meant to find a different way. His sustenance was always supposed to be not others, but that which is self-sustaining and life-giving. And so what's happening now is Paul is saying, hey, listen, there's another way. And I know that this way, it's, it's the way you've been raised to behave. It's the, it's the lies you believe. I, I know you're, you're a Roman citizen, Philemon. I get it. I know this is what you're supposed to do, but you were made to be different. That the lion, even though he thinks he's created to eat flesh, even though he thinks he's created to be satisfied on the flesh of others, the lion has to realize, I'm not just begrudgingly eating straw just to quote-unquote do the right thing. I'm actually learning that my satisfaction is always supposed to come from justice, righteousness, mercy. That my satisfaction was never supposed to be at the at the behest of others. It, it wasn't supposed to come from lording power and privilege of others. My, my satisfaction, my identity was never supposed to be in these claws and these fangs. I was always meant to eat straw. I was always meant to live at harmony with those around me. The lion was always supposed to lay down with the lamb. But sin enters the world and through it death And now we got a cycle of violence where lion devours lamb and lamb fears lion. The lion forgetting he was never designed and made for this. He was always meant to lay down with the lamb. He was always meant to find his satisfaction in eating hay. And so what Paul is doing, he's letting Philemon know, he's reminding Philemon that the reality is Philemon, you think that if you welcome him back as a servant, you'd be satisfied. Actually, it's going to kill you. It'll be like flesh rotting in your tummy. It'll be satisfactory in the moment. It might feel good. You might get the restitution and the vindication you desire, but you'd be sliding back into the old way. You'd be eating flesh again. And that way leads to death. But oh, if you welcome him back as a brother, you welcome him back. Let's be honest. What Paul is doing is brilliant here, subverting the Roman slave and master system. Why? Because if he welcomes him back as a brother, what does that entail? He's welcoming him back as an equal. And so what Paul is doing is laying the seed, he's laying the seeds of abolition in this text. Why? Because if all of a sudden, even though society might have these these norms in which one is is, is placed more valued over the other, Paul is saying, actually, well, those, those, those norms and systems actually mean nothing when you welcome him back as a brother. When you welcome him back as someone worthy of dignity and honor. If he welcomes him back as a brother, what Philemon does is acknowledging the imago Dei, the image of God in his brother Onesimus. And in doing so, preserves the imago Dei in him. And so, how does the, learn, how does the lion learn to eat straw? Well, the lion has to learn that straw was always better than flesh. It was always more satisfactory, that righteousness and justice and mercy were always more satisfactory than power and violence. And here's the thing. As we're sitting here listening to this and we're we're imagining, well, like, but like Ryan, I haven't I don't actively going out go out to wound people. I don't actively try to like assert myself over others. And what Paul is saying to Philemon is like, yeah, I know normally you wouldn't do this, but when it comes to this moment, this situation, 
Those old temptations come back strong. And if our, if our idea of what it means to be human, to be a Christian, is to mean to acknowledge two realities at once, that we are both filled with the Spirit and at war with the flesh. And so the lion can never become ignorant of his lionness. He just has to remember that there's a different way to be a lion. There's a different way to embrace the way of Jesus. There's, there's a different way to go about being a lion is to learn to enjoy and savor the straw of righteousness, justice, and mercy. And so Paul is inviting Philemon to embrace this way, to do the line work of repentance. Remember, repentance is in a moment, a constant decision. And so while Philemon has been doing the work up until now. It's at this moment where that work matters. And now he has to choose in this moment whom he will serve. Will he serve his self-interest and his desires? Or will he be the one who follows Jesus? The one who learns to eat straw like an ox? Will he find a new form of sustenance? Would it not come at the cost of his brother Onesimus, but, but would he learn to find new forms of sustenance in welcoming, him, welcoming Onesimus back as a brother? You know, there's still a tension that remains in the text, though. Okay, so Paul has made his case. Hey, welcome, him, welcome Onesimus back as a brother. You'll gain far more than you welcome him back as a slave. But there's still a tension that remains. It's the money that's owed. When Patrick was preaching last week, the idea of there's still a debt. There's still something that needs satisfaction. Onesimus still owes Philemon money. And so what does Paul do? Well, I'll read you this here. He says, If you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. If he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. And then here's this interesting note. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even yourself besides. <laughs> like a subtle flex, you know? Paul pauses his secretary. In the ancient Roman world, writing utensils are incredibly expensive, so when you need to write a letter, you usually hire someone because there's no Control-Alt-Delete. You know, like there's, 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 no, there's no reset, there's no, there's no copy-paste. That's it. You, you messed up the letter, it's done, okay? So he's right, he's, he kind of pauses the secretary. Imagine me for a moment. He's saying, hold up, hold up. He grabs the quill out of the hand and begins to write in his own hand. I, I have sloppy handwriting, so I like to imagine his handwriting was sloppy too. And he's saying this, hey, listen, like, just so you know, this is not Onesimus trying to get one over on you. I'm writing this myself. You recognize my handwriting. This is me, Paul. If he owes you anything, I'll pay it. Put it on my tab. Oh, and by the way, that life you have now in Jesus, just remember who introduced you. Why? Why does Paul need to acknowledge the money owed? Because if the 
financial, the idea of financial restitution never gets addressed, then what does Philemon always have over and against Onesimus? The debt. So he might welcome us back as a brother, but on a bad day, hey, Onesimus, you, you owe me. Hey, Onesimus, can, can you go do this thing for me? Remember, you owe me. Hey, hey, Anisimus, I I know you're not my servant anymore, but can you pick up the laundry? Remember, you owe me. If the debt is never absolved, then Philemon always has power to lord over Anisimus, even if he quote-unquote accepts him like a brother. And this is where Paul is wiser than most because he knows until the debt is actually dealt with, then the power Philemon has over Anisimus never really goes away. And so what does he do? He says, that's my debt now. I'll pay it. And guess what? It's kind of already paid because of what I've already done for you by introducing you to the gospel. So he goes on to say, I, I know you're, he says, he says this, I, I have confidence in your obedience. How can he write with such confidence? Because now that the debt is dealt with, now that Onesimus doesn't actually owe Philemon anything. What what doesn't Philemon have over Onesimus anymore? Power. The lion gets declawed. The lion can overexert himself over the lamb. Why? Because the debt has been satisfied. In this, um, Paul becomes a Christological figure, a Christ-like figure for both Onesimus and Philemon. In Onesimus, he frees him of his debt. But for Philemon, he frees him from the power that would come with having the debt, with being able to use it over and against his brother Onesimus. You see, in the line work of repentance, we have to acknowledge that repentance is a necessary death, that to repent is to die to lay one's life down, to lay one's identity down. And for the lion, what is that laying down? Well, the power and privilege and status that made one a lion. But the lion can't simply just lay down his power, status, and privilege and now walk around with a gaping hole because what will eventually come into fill that again? Well, the lies of power, status, and privilege. And so what needs to happen for the lion? Well, the lion needs to have that hole filled. He actually, has to re- he actually has to give something of himself and receive something in return. The, 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 the loss that exists there, that loss of identity that comes with being a lion, that, that power, that status, that privilege that made one a lion, what, 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 what turn fills that void? What is the new identity? Well, throughout this entire letter, Paul is actually coaching Philemon on how to do lion work. At every turn, and we see it right in the beginning in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 8, that Paul at every turn in this letter had the right to exercise his power over Philemon. What does he say? Verse 8, though I might be very bold and command you to do what is fitting, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. That this entire letter, Paul has been giving a master class on what it looks like to be a lion learning to eat straw. That Paul, 
Pharisee of Pharisee, Roman citizens, apostles to the, to the Gentiles, the very person who introduced Philemon to the gospel has every right in this moment to just command Philemon what he should do, but he doesn't. He holds back. He lays down his power. He lays down his privilege, and he says, I'm just going to appeal you based off love. That the love you have for me and the love I have for you and the love God has for both of us. And if we do that, we both learn how to eat straw. We both learn how not to appeal to our, our baser natures. We both learn how to put away the claws and to put away the fangs and learn to eat straw. In this moment, Paul becomes like Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or who, who, who did not consider it something to be lauded over, celebrated to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. In other words, Paul is doing exactly what Jesus did. He's emptying himself of his power and his privilege and his coming like a servant, saying, would you please, on the basis of God's love for us, would you welcome Anisimus back as a brother? How does the lion learn to eat straw like an ox? The lion has to become a lamb. The lion has to have a radical transformation in which they become that which they always feasted on. It's um, one of the early church fathers said this, Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. That Jesus becomes human so that he could glorify us. That the lion becomes a lamb to the led to the slaughter so that we too might become lambs, learning to eat straw, learning, learning to find satisfaction as our Savior does in the self-emptying of power and privilege and a life lived as a sacrifice unto others. Paul is asking Philemon to do something that he's doing in this very letter, emptying himself, taking the form of a sacrificial lamb saying, the debt's on me now, I'll pay it. Because I'm not going to use my power to get you to do what I want, Philemon. Matter of fact, I'll incur a debt if that's what's necessary to get you to welcome him back as a brother. The lion becomes a lamb. And then truly the lion learns to eat straw because he becomes what he was always meant to be. He becomes the self-giving sacrifice for others. That is the true repentance of the lion, where the lion lays down his power and becomes the self-giving sacrifice for others. And so, band, come help me out. I definitely went a little over, but, you know, this is one of those midnight hour sermons when God comes in the midnight hour and you end up with handwritten notes, you know? <laughs> I'll acknowledge there's a lot to process here today. First, there's the very idea of lion work and the very reality that some of us think we've done the work, but there's still work to do. There's the tension also that some of us, for all the work we've already done, 
We're facing right here and now a very real temptation to go back to the way we used to be, to how we used to relate to others and the world around us, because it might benefit us now. And for some of us, it feels like just yesterday we've wounded someone for our own self-exaltation. There's a lot to respond to today. And so, in preparing this response, I, I want to go back to that story, um, Les Miserables. There's this moment, after living a, a beautiful life, essentially saving a city from financial destitution, that Jean Valjean becomes like a hero to this town. He becomes the pinnacle of goodness and justice and mercy. And then he finds out that a case of mistaken identity has put someone else on trial in his place. Jean Valjean, who's escaped, who's no longer dealing with the consequence of his crimes, finds out that a man is being accused of being him and is being accused of being sent back to the galleys from which he escaped. And so you think... In this moment, Jean Valjean, this pinnacle of, of purity, immediately responds. He says, no, I won't let another man die in my place. I will go do what is just and right. And he wrestles with it for days. And he keeps trying to justify, if I let that man die in my place, look at all the good I'm doing. Like, if I, if, if I just exert my power, my influence, my authority a little bit so I don't have to deal with the, I don't have to go back and, and maybe potentially end up being a, being a galley slave again. If I can just justify in myself that, that this moment of, of using these claws and these fangs is worth it, then, you know, maybe I'll let him die in my place. And he wrestles and wrestles until finally he can't, do anything else but go and reveal himself and save this man's life. And that is the true repentance of lion work. It's, the, it's not that the, the temptation goes away to exalt ourselves, to, to use our power and privilege over against others, to wound others for our self-pleasure. That temptation never goes away. True repentance is then what will we do when we're faced with it? Will we be the lion and devour the flesh of another so that we can feel satisfied, even feel justified in doing so? Or will we be like Paul? Empty ourselves, become like lambs, and be the sacrificial offering for the lives of others. That is line work. That is what it means to be repentant. To become that with which we used to exert ourselves over the lion becoming the lamb, the sacrifice for many, as Christ did for us. So why don't you guys stand? In a moment, we're going to do communion. But if you want to acknowledge today that you're facing that temptation, if the lion is still prowling about in your heart, and you still want to use that power and privilege to get what you want, you're it's still, it's still an option for you. Like you, st you still want to use the claws. If that's you, then our prayer team, I pray for you on the sides. You've never even thought about repenting and turning from a lifestyle of 
wounding others. Today is your day. So let me pray for us and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Father, I want to acknowledge that this was a weighty word, God. But I also want to acknowledge that the weight of this word is far lighter than the curse of sin and death. And while it might be hard to admit that even on our best days, we're still prone to become lions, it is better we admit it, God, and in turn become lambs, a self-sacrificial, self-giving offering for the life of many. And so would you give us the courage, if we need to respond, to respond. Because if we don't, Today might be a good day, tomorrow might be a good day, but a few weeks down the line, that line's still there, it's still hungry. And unless we learn to eat straw, unless we learn to find our self-worth and value elsewhere, God, we will become that which we swore we rejected when we met you. Give us the strength to respond today. In Jesus' name, amen.